This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, religion, and so much more with me, Adam Smith. Higher education professionals have been bracing for the Supreme Court decision that eliminated so-called affirmative action in college admissions. While many argue that the policy and practice are discriminatory and provide a side door for less qualified Black and Latinx students, we know that that's far from true. In fact, data shows that the group who benefited the most from affirmative action policies are white women. Moreover, the longstanding practice of giving legacy and donor preferences to the children of the privileged persists. But that is far from the whole story as America's college-going population becomes more black, brown, poor, and urban. Today, we're joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Zach Ritter. Zach Ritter received his PhD in higher education from UCLA, focusing on Asian international students' cross-racial interactions. He is currently Vice President of Leadership Development at the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles. Additionally, he was Associate Dean of Students at California State University, Dominguez Hills, and teaches at various campuses a course called The Revolution Might Be Televised, Social Justice History Through Music and Movies. He is a diversity inclusion educator for Staten Consulting Group and has recently co-edited a book entitled Whiteness. Zach, thanks for joining us. Let's get uncomfortable. Zach, thanks for making the time to join us. Let's get uncomfortable, bro. That's where we live. That's where we stay. Uh, that's that. That's where I wish more people would stay. Amen. But I, but I know you do. Um, <laughs> so I thank you for living a life that's one of embracing being uncomfortable and also challenging other people that uncomfortable, that other people's trauma is much more important than our comfort. Hmm. Um, and to always be, be doing that. So, and I know it's, I wanted to have this conversation with you on this SCOTUS decision and affirmative action and all that, because you're a scholar, you're in the work, you're doing justice work, not just in the U S but around the world, but then you're also white, right? You're Ashkenazi Jews. So it's, it's also a different conversation to have as a justice practitioner about affirmative action and the importance of it and the history of it was somebody who is not a person of color. So talk a little bit about, for your perspective, the history of affirmative action, you know, in the 60s and how things came to be, especially in college admission. Educate us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, once again, thank you so much for having me here today. Um, I always love getting the text from you because I know the real stuff's about to go down. I'm like, okay, when and where? I feel like Batman. Okay, where? I got to go. Where's the sign? Um, so, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot since you asked me to come on. And I was like, why am I so dedicated in my career, personal and professional, to be doing this justice work? And my dad was born in a refugee camp. And his parents were enslaved in this 
effed up system in Europe. And I think there's a lot of anger in me of how and why did this happen to my family and why were all these people killed in my family? And then you turn on the TV, you look at your phone and you see all the injustices play out again in real time in our day with folks with different melanin, you know, with, with different situations on a different continent, but it, it just, it drives me crazy. And then it's like, well, what are we going to do about it? So what we're going to do about it today is we're going to talk about some history and, and try to talk about what are some possible solutions to this uh, madness that we're seeing. So affirming action, right? It's supposed to be something that's affirming mm. to folks in society yes. that have been stepped on for almost 500 years, right? So let's take it way back, right? Something called the Freedmen's Bureau. You know about this. You could, you could school me on this stuff. 1865, Abraham Lincoln is assassinated and we get a slave owner, Andrew Johnson, as president. Andrew Johnson is um, somewhat, he puts this general in charge of doing the Freedmen's Bureau. The Freedmen's Bureau lasts from 1865 to 1872. And the Freedmen's Bureau is helping 4 million Black refugees in the South. They are a stateless people. Uh, sounds like the Jewish folks, right? They are a stateless people and they um, are refugees in this land and they are not considered citizens. They cannot vote. Um, they are not even technically freed yet, right? Because the, 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 the 13th Amendment is not passed. And so the Freedmen's Bureau is trying to get people um, housing, clothes, some money, some education, and even as we see this slow progress of trying to help folks who are, um, again, 4 million refugees on this continent, white, Christian, Democrat, Southerners are saying, all right, enough is enough. When are, when are these folks going to stand on their own two feet? And they want to destroy the Freedmen's Bureau two years after it's created, and it is abolished in 1872. And then we know that in 1877, Reconstruction is formally ended, and the North takes out the 100,000 troops from the South, Tilden Hayes, you know the deal, in exchange for we get the Northern president and you, and, and we'll, we'll end Reconstruction. Then you have um, white terror unleashed once again in the South, lynchings, again, the rise of the KKK after Ulysses S. Grant in 1871, when after the KKK and actually arrested a lot of people and killed a lot of the KKK. But the reason I bring this up is because of several reasons. Number one, this is a similar rhetoric of, okay, affirmative action stuff really started in the 60s. Isn't it about time that we're done with this? Like, I think That's right. we're, we're in a post-racial nation. Let's get on with it. We're done. And we're going to get to Sandra Day O'Connor with her in 2003 with the notion of in 25 years, we're not going to need uh, race. Zach, let me, because you're spot on. And this reminds me of a conversation, interestingly enough, I was having with my mother on Sunday night. 
Mm. And we were talking at some point, my mom was asking, we're talking about her as a single woman and the first house that she bought with these two biracial kids. Mm. She had to back then 1976, 77, she had to write a letter to not to the bank or to the realtor, to the owners of the house. Mm. And they had to decide was it okay to send sell this house to this single woman? Wow. And I said, Mom, and she and I said, Mom, you know, proud of her for doing that. No education beyond high school. But the reality is, if you were black, they would have just said no. Mm. And my mom said, Well, how that was possible? I said, Yeah. And then so then the only how and this was suburban Twin Cities. So then I said, Mom, then the only house that if you were black or brown that you could get in the Twin Cities was over north. Because the reality was those other suburban neighborhoods where they were discriminating and say they wouldn't sell to you. And then the banks through redlining were saying, well, those are less desirable investments for us. So then you continue to live in this circle. And I said to her, do you understand that 1619 hmm. to 1865 mm -hmm. is a, you were talking 300 years. Hmm. And then from 1865, 7, 8, 72 to 1968 Voter Rights Act, right? Mm -hmm. There's another ish hundred years. Mm -hmm. And that there's really no time between I my best friend was born in 1958. Yeah. And so when people say post-racial, we've come past all that, right. we've we haven't even come my best friend's lifetime past that. Okay. That's right. Right? I mean, so to think that we are in some post-racial space when we're talking about 500 years, right? Yeah. Where you're saying 4 million freed slaves, right? So-called yeah. freed slaves. Right. And how many non, how many white folks? It's about a quarter of a million, right? So you, you have these folks who have, like you're saying, no state, stateless people, languageless people, cultureless people, Propertyless people, educationless people, and then what we're told is, pull yourself by up by your own bootstraps. And the only reason those people, I was sitting, Zach, at um, in Grant Park the night that President Obama won the election. Mm. That was in two thousand eight. From nineteen sixty eight to two thousand and eight, you have went from legally being able to be legally oppressed right? Through your own fight, blood, sweat, tears to the presidency of the free world in 40 years. Mm. That's crazy. And mm -hmm. then to say that somebody wants a backdoor, side door, less than qualified makes absolutely no logical sense. Maybe what more people need in our country is they need to take AP US history and really understand the history of this country. Because there's no way anybody would say anybody black in particular in this country is lazy, needs a side. Because everything anyone brown has in this country, they sacrifice their lives to have. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to share that. No, that's that's facts. That that's facts. And and we're gonna get there. Uh, in time, but I want to take us back again to uh, what's the Audre Lord thing? You can't destroy the master's house with the master's tools. But if you're the master, you can keep creating more um, 
plantations and building out um, systems of, of destruction and violence. Um, so John Robertson Supreme Court say are using the Equal Protections Clause, which comes from the 14th Amendment. Now let's take the viewers, listeners back to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment are very, very important. The 13th Amendment, we all know from the documentary, ends slavery officially, kind of, you know, ish. But there's that clause, if you're in prison, oops, sorry, you, you're still, you know, property of the state. So the 13th Amendment is what? 1868 is when it really passes, ratified. 14th Amendment then says, it doesn't say it, but basically black folks are citizens. Because before they're just non-citizens, they're just here. We don't like white America doesn't know what to do with them, but what they do with them is sharecropping and do slavery by another name for another hundred years plus. So the 14th amendment says everyone should have equal protection under the law, no matter your, your you know, race, color, creed, all that. The 15th amendment then says you can vote. Folks can vote. If you're born in this, on this land, you can vote. And this, this was some radical stuff from radical Republicans, right? What was his name? Thaddeus Stevens that actually were trying to do some progressive stuff so much so that this, this was the first impeachment where they wanted to go after Andrew Johnson because he was a, a, a Southern, you know, Dixiecrat and, and, and they impeached him, but weren't successful the whole way. All right. So let's fast forward a little bit to Jerome Carabell, 2006, writes a really good book about the turn of the century, and it's called The Chosen, and it's about Princeton, Harvard, Yale, and how they're freaking out about Jewish folks. It's called The Chosen, Jerome Carabell. 19... 10, well, really 1890s, you know, Southern Europeans, what they call ethnic whites or like, you know, dirty whites, whatever, the Irish folks, Italians, Jews, they come to America because the SHIT is hitting the fan in Europe. The pogroms are popping off. Kishinev pogrom, 1903, 1881, the czar is killed. They blame it on the Jews. So there's a lot of killing going on in, in uh, Europe. And so folks are, are coming here until we cut off our borders in, in 1924. So Harvard, Yale, Princeton get really, really freaked out because they're like, whoa, we got too many Jewish folks and they call it the Jewish problem. <laughs> okay. And so they create quotas. They create quotas to keep out Jewish folks and they have a J1, J2, or J3 status on your application that says, if you're J1, it means we know that you're a Jew. But J3, it's like, I you, you kind of smell like, well, I don't know, something's going on here, right? So they create quotas, uh, the Ivy Leagues. Um, and in 1924, 25% of Harvard is Jewish. And then they're really freaking out. They're like, oh my God, these, these hordes of, you know, extremely handsome looking Jewish folks are coming and they're, they're, they're taking our spots and maybe they're taking our women and our, our men, whatever. No, they weren't, they weren't allowing women in and then anyway. So whatever. So 
that's where we start getting the quota stuff. And then Jewish folks organize and, and you know, they start creating uh, like Stanley Kaplan in the, in, the, in the 50s starts creating SAT study tests because uh, Anglo-Christian whites are creating the SAT to keep out Jewish folks and keeping out other ethnic whites, Italians, et cetera, Irish, because they feel like these immigrants are not doing well in these SAT tests. And so let's create barriers to keep them out because we don't want them climbing up in in our mm. in society and, and let for all the brown folks that are listening black and brown folks can't get into harvard and yale and princeton at this point they can't no. even get into no. the university of texas the university of virginia the university of minnesota so let's let's be clear that the only college that they had at the point that zach is talking about are hbcus thank god for them right so this whole system was created quotas to keep Jews out, but the reality was the brown people weren't even thought of at this point. Zach, continue. That is 100% true. And we know that W.B. Du Bois, um, who is the unicorn, uh, goes to Harvard in what, 1890? Yes. Yeah. Right. And so he was like the first black dude to really do it um, in, in these in these uh, white Christian establishments. Uh, and 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 just slight pause remember that 1636 is when harvard was created uh by the white colonists and it was the first corporation in america as well it's important to understand the 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 financial and the educational component venn diagram of these things because the board of harvard was the first corporation uh in in the colonies i guess you could call it and the notion was in 1636, Harvard is going to create the future Christian white leaders of the colonies and excluding um, everybody else. And at the same time, killing Native Americans to take the land and then enslaving black folks to get money because Harvard, Princeton, Yale were going to go out of business. But then they started owning black folks which got them a lot of money and kept them afloat. So that's a whole Ebony and Ivy, another book, check it out about the slave trade and the Ivy Leagues, Ebony and Ivy. Okay, so then you have 30s, 40s, 50s, check out a book called um, When Affirmative Action Was White by Ira Katz Nelson. I think he's a Jewish brother. And Ira Katz Nelson is talking about we did have affirming action for these white ethnic folks from Europe, meaning the GI Bill in what, 1944, says if you served in the military and you were not dishonorably discharged at a higher rate like black folks because of the systemic racism, you can get a free education and you can get a very, very affordable house. But if you were black or brown, you could not because the colleges wouldn't take you unless it was and, and redlining wouldn't let you buy a house in red neighborhoods and neither would housing discrimination and racism. So Correct. you that this is exactly what my mom and I were talking about. I said, so black soldier fights for the United States in World War II comes home. We lived in a post-war house, this house I grew up in, right? 
those whole neighborhoods, people got those houses essentially, I don't want to say free, but free-ish, right? And that's how you build wealth. Two ways in this country, education and property ownership. And the system has been trying to keep black and brown people away from those two things from the beginning of time, right? And so what you say is you come out of the war and that this is the part that's so infuriating about, I was talking to one of my students who kept saying, you know, my family has worked hard. Yeah, they worked hard and my knee hurts, but comparatively speaking to someone who's been in labor, my knee don't hurt that dang bad. Right. So, yeah, they worked hard on the moving walkway in O'Hare airport, but black and brown folks have been fighting and running up the down escalators since 1619. Right. And the systems were designed to do that. So just as everything that Zach's saying, black soldier comes out of Latinx soldier, indigenous soldier comes out of World War II, can't get the GI Bill, which means you can get the GI Bill, but there's no colleges that will admit you. And then you can't, well, sure, you can get the GI Bill to buy a house, but the suburban neighborhood won't let you in because it's legal to discriminate. And then the banks redline all around the neighborhoods that will take you and say, uh, those aren't worth investing. And so there's no way to build the, the wealth, thus the need to affirm things in the first place. Right, 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 right. And I like um, Alicia Garza's uh who's a a, a Jewish black sister who started, you know, Black Lives Matter. She has a book called The Politics of Power. And in there, she has a great definition of racism, which is a set of rigged rules. Right. And that just it's so succinct. And that's what it is. Now, going back to Katz Nelson with with when affirmative action was white, affirming action in the 30s and 40s you have you know the juxtaposition of hoover with fdr hoover says well the federal government shouldn't get involved in the stock market crash after 1929 and you know figure it out and if everyone's homeless even if you're white oh sorry fdr comes in and says no we're going to do affirming action we're going to do the aaa we're going to do the w works project administration we're going to do the alphabet soup of projects that are going, you know, maybe even uh, Tennessee Valley Authority, right? Uh, Not far from where you're at, to get poor white folks electricity, running water, and we're actually gonna provide them with shoes and with bootstraps and with paved roads and with a good job, pick up a shovel, pick up a pick, and you're gonna be part of the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC, and we're gonna pay you a living wage and you're going to get some food and so you're going to get out of the squalor of of you know the dust bowl and all those pictures of that we see of dying white people now with the fdr stuff because he made the deal with the devil of the the southern dixiecrats they can't pass an anti-lynching law and domestic workers aka black women are uh, and black men and brown men and women are left out of this affirming action on top of domestic workers left out of the fdr new deal agricultural workers meaning farm folks meaning black and brown folks are left out of the new deal 
So Alicia Garza Schwartz's notion of rigged rules, we are seeing this come into fruition. Now my Jewish Ashkenazi brothers and sisters are slowly ascending into whiteness, right? To, re- to white whiteness, right? In these, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. But again, I want to hit this home for our listeners. 1944, the GI Bill may be the most important moment of systemic change for ethnic whites in this country at the expense of black and brown folks. Because if you were to chart a chart, a map or whatever, you a graph, you see ethnic whites ascending into home ownership because redlining was you know, hurting our black and brown brothers and sisters and into getting a good education. And then this leads to the 50s of Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King, who's 1957 is saying is leading bus boycotts saying all these all this terrible public policy that was created in the 30s and 40s and 50s are killing us, like literally. And Brown versus Board of Education is a is a step in the right direction, but it was done because we didn't want to look like savages to the Soviet Union and to the rest of the world of how we're dehumanizing and sticking dogs and hoses and 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 the slow death of of not having a, a healthcare, housing, and education for Black and Brown folks in this country. Martin Luther King and many others, Ralph Abernathy, you know the deal, uh, Bayard Russin start a movement to show America that there needs to be another way. And that if you are a good Christian nation and you see the suffering of your brother and sister, no matter what color they are on TV, that you will then be moved to change the way you vote, to change the way you spend money, to share a hamburger diner with your black brother or sister. And in 1961, a young man named JFK actually has a black lawyer named Hobart Taylor Jr. right on the side of his speech about government contractors, the words affirmative action. And Hobart Taylor is an interesting character. Y'all should read up on him. Um, his father actually came into um, a lot of money by being a uh, a uh, successful businessman, uh, Hobart Taylor Sr. And Hobart Taylor Jr. is is in JFK's administration, is also in LBJ's administration. And there's this notion, well, in the speech, JFK says, we need to have uh, government contractors also be equal in terms of um, black and brown um, fair rights. This then goes into colleges. There's no law passed saying colleges have to do affirming action, but JFK and then LBJ and then ironically Richard Nixon in their speeches are talking about the importance of affirmative action. And so you see colleges starting to admit more black and brown folks and this is after white people are trying to kill them with the integration of Little Rock, you know, and, and all the pictures that we know and see uh, um, 
what's her name? Ruby um, in, in, in New Orleans. Yeah, Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges. Yeah. Arthur and Lucy Foster at the University of Alabama, where they had to, one day, Arthur and Lucy Foster was on campus and they had to sneak her out in tunnels. So that was years before the schoolhouse door that um, George Wallace stood in to to prevent James Hood and Vivian Malone from enrolling. But Arthur and Lucy Foster, now the College of Education at the University of Alabama is the Lucy Foster College of Education, named after her, who only went there one day um, and had to basically run for her life, ended up coming back later and getting a degree. But um, very, very crazy, interesting time um, that you were risking your life not only to own property, regardless of your service in in the military but to get the same education that you were you were granted the law to do mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and while all this is happening white certain white folks are accruing intergenerational wealth right through that property ownership through that college access let alone the British folks who came a long time ago and the French folks that came a long time ago and the German folks that came a long time ago have already been running the race and passing that baton of intergenerational wealth to to their kids and grandkids and black and brown and native folks and Chinese American folks. 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act have not been able to accumulate this wealth or status in society. Um, OK, so. Then you have 1978, and I and I and I should say, you know, uh, my brother um, Stokely Carmichael Kwame Torre has a great speech that encapsulates the late 60s and then the early 70s in terms of the black movement, which becomes well, what do we want? We want black power. He says Martin Luther King was a very beautiful man. He was a patient man, and he was a good Christian man. But he made one fallacious assumption. He said, or he thought, if you put black suffering and black death on TV, which we call black death spectacle now, our white brothers and sisters will be moved to change the way they act, think, breathe, sleep, etc. But the one fallacious assumption that he says Martin Luther King made is that our white brothers and sisters have a conscience. America has none, has none, has none, he says, right? So you see the rise of the Black Panthers in, a, in, a, in a, uh, 1969 and then onward until, um, well, the FBI infiltrates and starts killing Fred Hampton in Chicago and starts killing a whole bunch of other people and the movement starts dying out um and it 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 coincides with a very big supreme court case in 1978 called Baki versus um well the UC Regents versus Baki B A K K E Alan Baki is a white white brother who was in the marines in his mid 30s applies to UC Davis as a medical student, gets rejected. Now, they rejected him because he's old. He was too old at that time to really go into medical school in his mid-30s. He, they don't tell him that. 
But he feels like, well, they rejected me because I'm white. And those quotas that they all set up from the Jewish problem time, there's, I think it was like 12 seats reserved for folks of color out of the 100 seats in the medical school. And he says it's unfair that there's a quota system at UC Davis Medical School, and he wins. He wins the Supreme Court case, and Baki decision sets a precedent, no more quotas, no more quotas, 1978. And then, you know, we got Reaganomics in the 80s and, and, and Bill Clinton in the 90s. It isn't really, okay, until 2003, with um, Gruder versus Bollinger and Gratz versus Bollinger. From 1978 to 2003, the colleges get creative which I think is what they're going to have to do now. They get creative and they have a, a kind of a point system where there's no quotas, but there's a compelling interest, right? This is what the Supreme Court always says. There's a compelling interest to have a kind of a multiracial campus. Now, the compelling interest is that only for the white kids to benefit from, you know, folks of color to be in their presence or, or you know, it was an economic engine, uh, a, a sorter of society to, to get into the middle class and the upper class. 2003, two white women from Michigan, Gratz and, and Gruder, two different cases, both say there's a, <laughs> this is so, oh man, it's separate but unequal is what they're saying because there's a stream for college admissions if you're white. And there's a stream for college admissions if you're a person of color. I didn't make it with the white standards. They're very high. But I would have made it if you put me in the stream of applications of folks of color. And that's unfair. Thank you for listening to part one of our conversation with Zach Ritter on affirmative action and the recent Supreme Court decision. We'll invite you to come back on Sunday, August 13th to listen to part two of the conversation. We'd also like to invite you to support this show. There's a variety of ways that you can do that. You can write a review anywhere you review podcasts, send us an email, and our emails are in the show notes, or share an episode with a friend. If you want to hear more from Adam, visit his website here adamspeak.com where you can book him to speak at your organization. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.